Well, thank you very much, Pastor. And I've had not just a good time, but I've had a grand time these last days with the men, as we've talked about the whole, in this matter of godliness and sanctification, the necessity of godly discipline, and that it holds uh, promise in this life right now, in the church, in our families, in marriages, for the gospel, that it holds promise for the life to come evermore for all eternity. And as Paul says, this is a, a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that we are to train, discipline ourselves for the purposes of godliness and ultimately sanctification. So it's been great to be with the men, and uh, it was uh, wonderful to have, uh, actually we had uh, pastors and men from other churches raise their hands. I was surprised at how many different churches were represented. So you've had a ministry out to the broader area here. And um, they say that, uh, that an army travels on its stomach. So does a church of men. And uh, we were wonderfully taken care of by the ladies of this church. And uh, we'll have to take uh, repent for the next few days uh, <laughs> of what we enjoyed all together. So it's been absolutely a magnificent time. So thank you. The text that we're going to look at this morning is from Luke, the 19th chapter, verses 1 through 10. I could take the time to read it, but I think it's such a familiar story. It'd be better if we just went through it, through its movements, and we're going to see the mighty, sovereign hand of God as he reaches out to save a lost man. So this is about the gospel that we're talking about this morning. And uh, we've prayed, but I want to offer just a little further prayer as we open God's word. So will you pray with me? Our gracious Lord, when we come together as your people sitting under the authority of your word, it is a divinely ordained act laid out by the very gospel itself when he told Timothy to give attention to the reading of the gospel and to the teaching and to the exhortation that he was to do that on a regular basis with his people. And as the word has been read this morning and now we have the word before us, we ask for, but we ask for with the wonderful knowledge that it's your desire to speak to us from your holy inerrant word. So may that happen for everyone here this morning, those with little knowledge, perhaps of no knowledge, and those with uh, years of knowledge of your holy scripture. Will you speak to us, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the famed Victorian preacher who preached to standing room only congregation of uh, people morning and evening. Uh, this is before a microphone, I understand. It would be a total of some 5,000 people on the Lord's Day. Charles Spurgeon established a uh, preacher's college uh, called the Pastor's College. And on that, uh, as part of it, he would take them to his, his estate, his a large uh, Victorian home, where there was a great oak called the Question Oak. And you can imagine this. I, it would be terrifying that Spurgeon would just 
announce a text, read the text, and then ask one of his students to stand up and preach on it before Charles Spurgeon and the rest of the student body. I can't imagine anything would make my heart pound more than that than having to do that. And on one occasion, he um, pointed to a man who was sitting out there, and he gave him the text that's before us, Luke 19, 1 through 10, story of Zacchaeus. And so the man got up in front of, of everyone else, and he said, as he began, Zacchaeus was a little man, and so am I. Zacchaeus was up a tree, and so am I. Zacchaeus came down, and so will I, and he went and sat down. (laughs) Well, Spurgeon loved it, and all the students loved it. And you thought, if he's got that kind of wit, he's going to survive the ministry one way or another. And the Zacchaeus story is a fun story. I mean, you can, you can look at it from the very humorous angle, the idea of a wee little man perched up in a tree, not wanting to be hidden, hidden from everyone else, is a humor of children's songs. I won't sing it, but Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree where the Lord, he wanted to see. And uh, we have fun with this. And it is fun, and it's, uh, it's been great in flannel graphs for teaching children over the years, but as fun as it is, it occupies a very serious place in Luke's great and grand gospel here in the 19th chapter. It's Jesus' last personal encounter before he enters Jerusalem. Now, if you, if you just look at the subheadings in your Bible, you have... Uh, Zacchaeus and Jesus in verses uh, 1 through 10. And then you have the parable of the ten minas, which goes in verse 11 down to 27. And then you have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So it is his last recorded personal encounter at the end of the road. Highly significant. It also contains the final phrase, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Uh, An incredible saying that informs us to a great extent what the Gospel of Luke is about. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That saving the lost is about why Jesus came. In his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. And in respect to salvation of Zacchaeus, the telling spiritual connection, you have two events that preceded it. In the context, you have the healing of the blind beggar, a man lost in blindness and poverty, who corresponds here to a man lost in his wealth and his corruption. That's right before it. And then in the account before it of the rich young ruler, it's also clear that of the connection because... You have there the salvation of a rich man who is impossibly lost. You read it in verse 25, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Impossibly lost, 
But in the text before us, the impossible takes place in the salvation of rich, super rich, little Zacchaeus, the man. Now, I've, I've, I've just thought about this. I thought if I was casting, see, if I could cast Zacchaeus, the movie, and I wanted to uh, have the lead for it, I'd have Danny DeVito, about this tall, shifty, you know. I, he would be perfect with his swagger for Zacchaeus. And from a tax-collecting per- perspective, Zacchaeus had his made. There were three places that you collected taxes in that part of the world, and one was in Jerusalem, and one was Jericho, and the other was Capernaum. And he had the Jericho, the Jordan River crossing, with rich palm groves and balsam groves, the trade that went through that way, the people that came, and he had the tax-collecting franchise. He had it for the Romans. So his idea was he could extort as much as he could get from the people pay the Romans what they needed, and he could keep all the rest. In modern terms, he was like uh, a Don Escobar of a tax cartel. You know, he could skim off all of that for himself. And so he was a man who was filthy rich in the fullest sense of the term. Filthy. Rich. And of course, he was hated by the local populace. He was uh, genealogically and hereditarily a son of Abraham, but he was a lackey of the Romans. He was despised. And I think the locals would like to see him put through the eye of a needle, squeezed out, as C.S. Lewis put it, in one long bloody thread from tail to snout, a long, thin sausage. Nobody would have ever guessed on that spring day that this little man, so rich and so unscrupulous, would want to see Jesus. But Luke says in the beginning of verse 3, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Do you see that? He was seeking to see who Jesus was. You say, why? Well, perhaps he had heard of Levi, the tax collector, who had become a disciple of Jesus. Uh, the, the tax collectors in those places would have hung together, know what each other were doing, maybe even got together in the same place, kind of a sort of a fellowship of the scumbags. Talk over their trade and, and how to do it, perhaps that. He was also known because the leadership of Israel called him a friend, Jesus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. A friend. It was an insult, but he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so he realized that possibly Jesus would have some interest, perhaps a soft spot for him. I think it's also very likely that Zacchaeus had found his wealth and lifestyle unsatisfying, kind of uneased. Disease invaded all of his pleasures. Nothing lasted, nothing satisfied. It was always going on to the next thing and then finding that drained of satisfaction. I mean, historically, 
I mean, that's how people, many people have been drawn to Jesus. You can go all the way back to Augustine in the second century. And Augustine said, and he said it uh, of what, what drew him to Christ. And, he, and in retrospect, he addressed God. And he said to God, you were always present, angry, and merciful at once. Interesting statement. Angry and merciful at once. Strewing the pangs of bitterness over my, law, my lawless pleasures. To lead me on to others, seeking others unmixed with pain. Nothing satisfied. And then he said, another time, Augustine speaking to God, he said, your goad was thrusting at my heart, giving me no peace until my eye could see you without mistake. So I think it's very likely because of, of what he's done here, he's taking the initiative, he's coming to see Jesus, that he was afflicted with a beautiful, severe mercy of dissatisfaction. Nothing satisfied. You put that together, and then I think he was probably weary of being hated by the people. I think Zacchaeus was a guy who could give as good as he got, and he did. But that, that withering rejection and disrespect and contempt left him desolate. Tired of the sad life, this restless man wanted to see Jesus. Fascinating what you have right there. Verse 3 tells us, you see it in verse 3, the last half of it, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. That's where you have fun with the children's things. Um. He really was small. And I think that they were probably, this is my imagination, but I think that probably when he tried to get around the crowd to see Jesus, there were people that were happy to kind of spread their robes out a little bit and step back maybe on his foot and say, oh, Zacchaeus, I didn't see you. You're so small. I don't know. Um, but Zacchaeus, he may have been short, but he had legs and he used them. And it tells us in verse 4, So he ran ahead and climbed up to a sycamore tree to see him. For Jesus was about to pass that way. I checked my Bible dictionary and they said this. They, they actually say what they think the tree was. You know, it was a ficus sycamorus. You heard that in probably home and garden television. A sturdy tree, they say, will grow to some 40 feet with wide branches and a short trunk. Just Zacchaeus kind of tree. Very easy to climb. Now, you picture the picture of a tiny man rejected, sitting alone, hidden to get a glimpse of Jesus, and it goes from funny to very touching. He certainly didn't want the crowd to know he was there. He was up in the trees, up in the leaves, hidden. I mean, he had his dignity, he had his pride, he knew that he could uh, suffer derisive things. But he would get a private view of Jesus, he would hear some of the things that Jesus said to the people while he sat alone, sort of appearing like a, an orphan into a warm, lighted home on a cold, dark night. Zacchaeus is up in the tree. Well, 
that interior drive that he had, that Zacchaeus had, was matched then, as we see in his account, by the exterior initiative of Jesus. Verses 5 and 6. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. You know the song, as the song goes, and as the Savior passed his way, he looked up in a tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. Uh, the Bible doesn't say this. The Bible just tells us what happened. But you can imagine when he, Jesus stopped under the sycamore tree, there, there was some pleasure. Zacchaeus thought he would heard some of Jesus' teaching. But as Jesus began to raise his eyes and lock his eyes with Zacchaeus in the tree, you can imagine a quick sweat and then sheer terror. Was he going to suffer ridicule? And then Jesus said his name. He knew who he was. My, oh my, oh my. When Jesus stopped under that sycamore tree and he said his name, some scriptural parallels come to mind. John, the first chapter. Jesus sees Nathanael under a tree. And what does he do? He discerns his guileless character. And he calls him to himself. Now he sees Zacchaeus up a tree and he discerns his guilty character. And he calls him to himself. So it was supernatural knowledge. The Father had granted Jesus. And then Jesus invited himself to his house. He didn't say, Zacchaeus, uh, could I come over? Uh, love to join you for dinner. He said, I must stay in your house. Because the Lord Jesus regarded that encounter as divinely orchestrated. And so you begin to see what you begin to see in this point of the story is that Zacchaeus seeking of Jesus and Jesus seeking of Zacchaeus are both sovereign works of God. That the crossing of their lives at that sycamore tree was a meeting scheduled before the foundation of the world, as I heard read this morning from Ephesians, the first chapter. It was a divinely orchestrated meeting. Set before the foundation of the world, and guess what? A camel is about to go through the eye of a needle. It says he, as I said, he came down and received him joyfully. That, that glad leap of Zacchaeus would have revealed to the people around some of the expectations that he had, a few leaves floating around, perhaps a few twigs, to, to all those things that are inside of, of Zacchaeus, of what he wanted what he'd been dimly wishing for, wildly hoping for. But here, apart from the crowds muttering that he's gone to be 
a guest in a house of a man who is a sinner. That's what they said about Jesus. The crowd grumbled. But apart from that, there's only joy. Zacchaeus' joy and Jesus' joy from here on. And so to the crowd's amazement, off strode Jesus with Zacchaeus hurrying along beside him. And when they got to Zacchaeus' house, according to Jewish custom, sometime during that stay as they spent the night, according to custom, after much discussion and prayer, let me put it this way. A little big man would formally stand before all Jericho and declare, verse 8, Behold, Lord, says that to Jesus, half my goods I give to the poor, half his fortune. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. So for starters, he gave away 50% of everything he had. And then he said, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll, I'll restore it fourfold. He defrauded people. He basically took his whole fortune and said, here it is, after meeting Jesus. And in effect, if you follow the context of where this comes from, he lived out the command that had earlier caused the rich young ruler so much grief. That's verse 22 of chapter 18, when he said, sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. So he's walking through the eye of a needle, and he's going to live to tell about it. That little man had become immense, huge. Acceptance by God had given him everything that he had longed for in life through the accumulation of wealth. He had wholeness and satisfaction. His compulsive drive to make money and hold on to it was gone. His grip was open. He went into the house, the littlest man in Jericho, and he left the biggest man in town. All because of Jesus. Now, there's a declaration that comes from Jesus in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. Well, he was the son of Abraham hereditarily, but not spiritually. And now he is a full son of Abraham sharing in the same saving faith of Abraham as he believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, that Jesus had come as the horn of salvation and liberated him and gave him the knowledge of salvation and forgiveness of sins. And so Zacchaeus was a new man, a totally new man. That's why he gave away his fortune. You know, we live in a, a really difficult time uh, socially and culturally because 
Evangelical Christianity, Bible-believing Christianity, is largely derided in the national media. I mean, there's exceptions here and there and so on, but I mean all kinds of things are said about Christianity uh, by the elites, that it's uh, sentimental, it's impractical, it's otherworldly, it is of little use. But I want to say, if it is impractical, it's our fault, not the Gospels. Because the Gospels' demands are intensely practical, and they include, and listen to this, a reorientation to our possessions, where our grip on things is loosened. That's what happened when this man was regenerated. His grip was loosened. And do you know that Dr. Luke has a tremendous concern to communicate this? And take your Bibles and just follow along. Just a few pages through Luke. I don't kind of walk through Luke's theology about this till we land where we are. In chapter 4, verse 18, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus quotes Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, the reason he says good news to the poor, he implicitly means those that are poor and poor in spirit and realize their need. But that's who I'm going to go to, to the poor. And then in chapter 6, verse 24, which is in what is called the Sermon on the Plain, very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, He says in 6.24, But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. He he pronounces a woe on the rich because of their self-sufficiency and wanting to hold on to their things and not look to him. And then if you turn over a few pages to chapter 12, verse 20 and 21, you have these solemn words to those who trust in riches. This is the man who built the barn. But God said to him, that's 12.20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Whoa. It starts to build through the Gospel of Luke and what he says. It reminds me of a short little poem. My barn burned down last night. Now I can see the moon. And then the 16th chapter gets a little more intense when you get this axiom, 1613. No servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or if you devoted to one and despise the other, then that great axiom, you cannot serve God and money. And then we move on to chapter 18 where we are, verses 24 and 25, and Jesus responds to the rich ruler who went away sorrowing. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this is, this is where the preaching kind of goes to meddling. 
Jesus said over and over again, it's useless to talk about loving him and trusting him and having a sweet assurance of forgiveness and glorious hope in heaven unless it makes a difference on our material attachments. That's what he says. That strong emotions, deep feelings, confidence and forgiveness are very nice if they open our hands and our grip on things. I was preaching in my own congregation years ago uh, in Wheaton. I was preaching through 2 Corinthians 8, which talks about the grace of giving. And I said, and I stick by it today, there is no such thing as a Christian Scrooge. If you're stingy, if you hold on to what you have, if you're not generous, take a good look at your life. Uh, I received a, a letter that week from someone who said, uh, how can you say such a thing? That's so legalistic. And I said, no, it's just the words of the Lord Jesus. That's all. And what Paul encouraged the church to do. Now, giving's not a means of redemption, but generosity is an evidence that he's touched your heart by grace. And they become pillars of discipleship. And I think sometimes people reach a sticking point when they start to read their Bible, languages change, they become honest. But giving, well, not quite ready. I think you can go past that sticking point by becoming a generous soul. And that's giving of whatever you have. Time, your things, your energies, even your money. Because the gospel makes people big. Now the account of Zacchaeus' changed life ends with a great summary mission, as we mentioned right at the beginning. For the Son of Man, verse 10, came to seek and save the lost. That is a memorable statement, isn't it? That's one to take to heart. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But let me tell you, it is just, it is almost like neon in what it says. Because the Son of Man is a self-chosen term by Jesus. This is what Jesus took out of Daniel, the 7th chapter, verses 13 and 14, where he has a vision of the Ancient of Days being given all dominion and authority, and he identifies himself as that great being out of Daniel. In fact, he uses it 60 times in the New Testament, Son of of man. I am that great one. To whom all dominion and authority is given. I am that one. The Son of Man, God Himself, has come to seek and save the lost. There's also, it's more than a double entendre, because the Son of Man became a son of man in his incarnation and his death and his resurrection. Both of those things. The son of man who thought it not robbery to be equal with God but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in a servant. He became obedient even to 
the point of death. That is the Son of Man, the awesome Son of Man. The transcendent God-man, co-eternal with the Ancient of Days, is the one who sought Zacchaeus and did the impossible. And here it is. Camel-brained, donkey-souled. Zacchaeus passed through the eye of a needle, not as a long, bloody thread from tail to snout, but whole because of the blood of Jesus. A miracle happened. Now, as you step back from this, with all the sovereignty that's laced over this in this interior initiative that he has in his heart, the exterior initiative of Jesus, you see that salvation came to Zacchaeus because he was sought out. It was God who prompted that interior seeking. To quote St. Augustine again, You follow close behind the fugitive and you recall us to yourselves in ways we cannot understand. He was after Zacchaeus. That it's God who makes us hungry. It's God who makes us search. It's God who makes dissatisfaction ooze from us. It is God who compels us. There's a great line from C.S. Lewis, a lot of quotable things, but you may have heard this one. Lewis said, the hardness of God, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. So what happened is God orchestrated Zacchaeus' interior compulsion to see Jesus. And God orchestrated that exterior crossing of their lives with the fig tree. It was all divinely managed. So if you step back and look at this, you see the massive God. Zacchaeus was caught because in his seeking he was sought. I sought the Lord. And afterward I knew, he moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of you. And this is a mighty gospel passage. A mighty gospel passage. probably speaking to most believers this morning, but there's some here. And if God is seeking you, you will have an interior dissatisfaction, an interior disease. Nothing satisfies. Nothing satisfies. And if he's seeking you and continues to seek you, you won't be comfortable anymore. You'll lack wholeness. You'll lack a clear conscience, a heart, and peace. But understand, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man, and his compulsion is our liberation. That is what happened to Zacchaeus. That's what happened.
And if that's your state, Christ is seeking you. And if that is so, you're at the sycamore tree. And he's saying, come down. I want to dine with you. I want your soul. I want your life. Because I'm going to give you a new heart. You may say, well, if you knew my heart, you wouldn't say that. And he says, oh, I know your heart. I'm going to remove the heart of stone. I'm going to give you a new heart. You're going to know the Lord. What a gospel passage. You go back to that final statement. For the Son of Man, the eternal, awesome God that has all kingdoms delivered to Him, has come to seek and save the lost as the incarnate Son of Man. That's the cross. That's the cross. If you don't know Jesus, He's looking after you in the tree. Then come down. And all you need to do is submit to Him Say, thank you, Jesus, Son of Man, for dying for my sins on the cross. And you'll get a new heart. Amen.